Hello, I'm Juliet Jakes, welcoming you back to the Suite 212 sessions. As those of you who've listened to previous episodes will know, our plan to relaunch Suite 212 as a fortnightly show with alternating free and subscriber-only episodes were put on hold by the coronavirus epidemic, which has brought much of the United Kingdom's cultural life to a standstill. Instead, I'm recording a series of interviews with contemporary artists, writers, filmmakers and others about their work, conducted via Skype. So apologies in advance for the diminished audio quality and more spontaneous than our usual output. The idea is to give a snapshot of the arts in the United Kingdom and beyond in the 21st century through individual conversations with people about their work, seeing which political concerns engage them and how the socio-economic conditions of the time have affected their practices. All of these will be made available for free via SoundCloud, but I'd still encourage you to subscribe at patreon.com slash sweet 212 as they still take time to plan and record. You can also make a one-off donation at donorbox.org slash sweet-212. Today, I'm talking to Zadie Shah, a Korean-Canadian artist born in 1983, with a strong focus on making, combining and exploring her own identity through film and performance, textiles and paintings. Based in London since studying at the Royal College of Art, Char investigates the issues of belonging and identity through an idiosyncratic lens, drawing influence from both the fantasy and the lived experience within the Korean diaspora. Her engagement with these issues of place and belonging become entirely relevant to current issues, where questions of self-identity within society are continually examined across all forms of media. Throughout her practice, Shah uses water and marine ecologies as metaphors for exploring the unknown, whilst also alluding to abstract notions of homeland. So Zadie, welcome to Suite 212. Thanks, Juliet. Hello. It's nice to talk to you again. The last time we talked about your work, I asked to profile you for Canadian Art Magazine. They were doing an issue on representations of femininity and gender in contemporary Canadian art. And so they made me aware of, of your work. And I was pleasantly surprised to find that you actually live just up the road from me in London. So we could meet up over a cup of tea rather than doing everything via, uh, via the internet like we're having to do now. So I thought I'd start this interview by just asking you about a couple of things that have happened since we spoke last year. Your most recent project has been some designs you've done for the Black Lives Matter protests that have been taking place in the last couple of weeks. I wonder if you'd like to maybe just tell us about those. Yeah, you know, I think probably like a lot of people, just seeing everything obviously on the news, you know, and it's not just uh, this moment with George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or Ahmed Aubrey. You know, this has been going on for a long time, you know, even whatever, before Eric Gardner, Trayvon Martin, all this. And so I just felt, I mean, I, I still do. And it's hard for me to talk about because I'll get really sad. But I just, I felt really, I just felt really, really impotent and just really like, what can I do to do something? And um, I'd come across another illustrator on Instagram who had made a poster um, that referenced the 19, kind of late 60s yellow peril supports black power posters that uh, reference basically a group of Chinese Americans who were protesting um, with the Black Panthers to support Huey Newton and um, the black power uh, civil rights cause. Anyways, I I shared the image like a lot of other uh, Asians did. And a friend of mine just, you know, had mentioned, oh, I really love this poster. And this person is a a dear person to me. And I thought, you know, I'm going to make a poster too, because I basically just wanted to show them how much I love them. I told them this after, but I also wanted to create an image that referenced that historical moments of kind of crossover 
uh, racial or ethnic allegiance and solidarity. And so I did that, hoping that it would inspire other, uh, you know, specifically East Asians to come out and support the Black Lives Matter protest and movement, mainly because my own feelings of how much I've learned and gained through Black intellectual thought and how much of my identity as a person and, uh, you know, my practice as an artist owes so much to Black feminist thought. Yeah, it just, it was really important for me to kind of rally up momentum. And um, it was really, how can I say this? It, I, I felt, I was really touched because I felt like so many people responded really positively. It was interesting because I, I think a few days later, uh, another artist very generously who I didn't know, who was also uh, originally uh, from America, Asian American person, had written me and said, you know, I just wanted to draw your attention to something that I had seen on the internet regarding these posters and how, you know, maybe using the slogan Yellow Pearl supports Black power is not to be used at the moment and can be actually doing more damage than good because it's, the arguments are it could be taking away from the main focus, which is, you know, Black Lives Matter. It's co-opting upon that protest movement to talk about kind of anti-Asian sentiments because of COVID, for example, or, you know, things that, you know, one can think about historically, specifically in North America. And also it creates maybe a space for East Asian complicity and complacency with the oppression of Black folks and Indigenous folks, again, specifically in North America within my own context because of colonialism uh, and the civil liberties that we have benefited from, from their struggles, and in a lot of ways not come out to support and show support and be vocal. And, you know, we can only even think about the 1992 uh, riots in LA and thinking about, you know, the Korean woman grocer who, you know, violently shot and killed that 16-year-old child for apparently stealing a soda. I mean, it was crazy. So anyways, you know, this person had brought this up to me. They were not trying to police tone me or anything. They were bringing it up because they themselves felt really confused about it and were having conversations with their friends and there was conflicting opinions about it. They basically said, what do you think? And I thought, you know what? I think that the argument that is being made really makes sense. And I, you know, looked to the other original poster that I had shared on Instagram that was really, really popular and saw that this person, you know, felt the same way, apologized and basically changed the poster to just say Black Lives Matter and um, Asians for Black Lives. And I think that there are counter arguments to be had. I had another friend tell me, you know, I completely understand why you did that. I think it was important and necessary to center it again on the Black Lives Matter movement, and that should be the central focus, which was my focus the whole time. But, you know, they said this is also something that, I guess it's like the idea that one wants to be proud of those historical moments as well, and that, that there was that crossover kind of solidarity and allegiance. So, I mean, those things are complicated, but I know this is a bit of a tangent, but this is something that happened really recently. I've been thinking about a lot. You know, it's a whole idea of um, wanting to be really clear. You know, this is not something, this is not an art piece that's shown in a kind of a niche space that we can all debate and talk about. And there might be kind of different spaces where we can have nuanced conversation, right? You know, there's two things happening. One, it's a poster that's being shared for free for the public to use. And it's a slogan. So you want it to be very clear. You don't want there to be room for misinformation being spread or for anyone to feel hurt or feel like, you know, Asian people are co-opting a movement or trying to, what we see a lot lately, and I'm always thinking about, you know, when I'm doing it, if I'm doing it, but the idea of kind of performing your politics, you know, being a performative ally, an optical ally, 
And um, the second thing was I read another comment by another Asian person on the internet on Facebook about it. And this person just said, you know, actually, I hadn't even thought about that when I had seen the post originally. I actually just thought that it was really um, the message was unreachable because for people that didn't have that historical reference point or that knowledge, it was kind of alienating. They didn't understand what it was, you know. So, I, you know, that I thought was brought up a lot of really interesting conversations and hopefully really fruitful ones where East Asians specifically, who are the ones who are fervently sharing this, because I think many of us so desperately wanted to show like, no, we care about this. This really deeply matters to us. And we want to show up for you because we haven't done so in the past. Again, by and large, people who shared it, I messaged them specifically. I said, can you please take this down and put the reason why? And then you can share the new image that I made. Please feel free to download that in high res on my website as well. And people, by and large, were really positive about it. And that's really great to think that, okay, this is not the right time. You shut up, you listen, you take it in, and you just, you move on. That's all it is. Yeah, that's how that came about. And I, I mean, it was a very little thing, but, you know, just kind of in the process of making one's work or, you know, whether that's text or painting or whatever. I mean, it was, I think it was a way for me to somehow process it as well. You know, taking that full day to kind of draw out the image and map it out and, you know, painted out on the iPad. I, I really, it, it was a meditative thing where I was really kind of grappling with what's going on now and what's been going on for so long. And I guess issues that really deeply matter to me and have mattered for so long. And I still feel really confused about things, not about my position, but I feel overwhelmed, which is, I guess, in many ways, really frustrating to think because I feel like I've spent my whole life thinking about these things. I kind of fell into thinking about this discourse since I was a really young child. And it just, I guess it really hurts to think that, gosh, I'm turning 37 and it doesn't seem to be getting better in many ways. You mentioned something quite interesting there that I'd like to pick up on, which is a rise in racist attitudes towards East Asians as a result of the COVID-19 outbreak. So I'd like to ask you maybe how you've responded to the lockdown, what you've been working on and what you've been kind of thinking about and whether it might be changing your practice at all. Of course, when all the kind of fervor was going on, I think, again, it seemed very specific to North America and in Canada where I'm from in Vancouver. I know there was that case in London, I think it was near Oxford Circus, where that young student got you know, beat up by four teenagers. I guess I've always been on the, the side of, I mean, not always my whole life, but maybe for the past 10 years, thinking about how myself as an East Asian, I've not really dealt with really covert, horrible, horrible racism for so long. And I guess I really feel and see and understand and have witnessed and I'm very aware of my privilege specifically within the art world, which is so strange. It's like a space where I'm, you know, able to move around freely and not really looked at suspiciously, you know, as the way I maybe would have when I was younger in Vancouver, when I was growing up in other kind of arenas of my life. And so when it was all happening, I kind of just, I guess I didn't really think too much about it, mainly because I just thought, well, this just always happens. Think about what Muslim people have been dealing with since like, forever and especially since 2001 I can't even imagine or you know thinking about the Latinx community in um, in America so anyways that was how it first started but then you know of course this is what happens with racial trauma is you start regressing to when you were young 
I became very paranoid going outside even to get groceries. For the first month of lockdown, I did not leave the house. I made my husband, my partner go to the grocery store. I wouldn't leave. I was really paranoid to like be outside seen with a mask because I just, again, I've never really dealt with anything bad in London. I'm very lucky. I think only once someone yelled like egg fried rice at me, which I was shocked at. I thought it was kind of funny. I mean, obviously I was, you know, embarrassed. Like this is what happens when people say things like that to you to hurt you but it it really hit me I'm like oh my god I am really embarrassed because I'm actually scared to go outside by myself to the point where I got into fights about it with my partner because he was like you are being paranoid no one is going to do anything I've seen other Asian people with masks on at like the market just come with me it's fine like I need help carrying stuff you know so but, but what you know whatever I was upset about that happening but you know I was also suspicious of a lot of again suspicious of a lot of Asian people complaining so fervently about this and I thought where the hell were you when I was talking about certain you know things that I found were either just racist in school and no one was there to back me up because these things never had affected you and it was interesting because I guess my experience of kind of East Asian communities within London have always circled around economic wealth and status, especially from a lot of the international students that I had gone to school with, because I come from a very different background. I come from, you know, a very mixed class background. I come from a single parent household, working class family, very different in terms of just like class, ethnicity, like crossover, whatever. And so I just very quickly realized, okay, a lot of these Korean and Chinese folks are basically at the apex of the kind of pyramid that I've looking to topple in the countries that they're from because they're from homogenous countries and they're at the top of their class space. Anyways, I guess what I'm trying to say with that is I guess there was a little bit of resentment feeling like, why are you complaining about this? But then I also got scared because this is what happens with memory. And then after a while, I just kind of sunk into um, the routine of lockdown. I was kind of really unstable and not feeling so great for the first month, I think like a lot of people. And then after I started thinking, like, I got to just enjoy this moment of just being still for a while. I'm never still. I'm very manic. I don't take care of myself. don't eat properly. I don't drink, like, any water. So I started kind of getting into a meditative, meditative space. And, of course, I was scared and upset throughout it all. But there became this moment, obviously, you know, before, this, you know, the killing of Armored Aubrey, first of all, where it was almost like, tranquil or something people like you know all this stuff like clap for carers and whatever people in my you know near my apartment complex singing outside with their acoustic guitars whilst I found it annoying to hear like Avril Lavigne's Skater Boy every week or whatever other like song they were singing you know at the same time I was like yeah it was cool and I would basically you know watch kids outside play around and things seemed to really slow down which you know, I'm sure everyone already has thought about or meditated about, which just seems really nice for me. And then obviously now we're in this situation and it's just, again, your head is being flipped on the other side and you just, it's just very confusing. And I'm sorry to go into these long tirades, but I guess it's like I'm really thinking at the same time I'm speaking because we're also in the middle of it. So I'm kind of having all of these thoughts. It's really interesting because one of the things I've wanted to do with these sessions, we've done 16 of them now, including this one. (laughs) And it's interesting to see, you know, how people respond creatively. I mean, some people I've spoken to, you know, their work is very, very reliant on having an audience. So they've either 
taken the chance to sort of reconfigure their creative practice or just had a long break. One or two artists I've spoken to have said that. Some people I've spoken to obviously are writers. Some of them, you know, do work that is very kind of psychological and internal. So they, you know, don't find it so difficult to, for the sort of force turning inwards that this has involved for a lot of people. Whereas some of the people I've spoken to, you know, write very kind of politically, they do journalism, and they've maybe found that they haven't had so much to say given what's going on, or they've had to take some time persuading themselves that what they do is still relevant in the face of what's been going on. All sorts of different responses. And, you know, there's been a real split between people who've gone into like hyper productivity and then people who've decided to take a break or just felt unable to work. So it's really one of the things I've wanted to do with with these interviews is to talk about people's experiences of the lockdown. But maybe we should move from there back a bit. You know, as I said earlier, I met you in, I think, early 2019, February or March. And uh, not long after that, you did a performance at the Venice Biennale. So maybe you'd like to tell our listeners and indeed me about that. Yeah, I was very um, lucky and it was kind of a... I don't want to say it was a last minute offer, but it was something that was um, that all the artists were invited to do quite soon to the opening of the Biennale. I think it was maybe about four months prior, five months or something. I'm, I'm not sure. Anyways, um, I was basically asked to do a performance that could take place outside. And they had mentioned to me, Aaron Caesar of Delphina had mentioned to me that they really... I guess they were interested in what I had done at Serpentine in 2016, which was kind of a processional performance outside of the pavilion. Um, Because obviously the idea for this performance program at Venice was kind of to create performance in the spaces in between. So there wasn't always necessarily a theatrical venue, let's say. I mean, there were for a few, for the few of the artists' performances, but by and large, they were meant to kind of be outside within, you know, different spaces of, you know, each of the pavilions, let's say. And so, you know, that was really great for me because I thought, okay, this is really good. This is clear. They've basically said, you know, specifically what they want, some type of processional performance outside. And I thought this is great because I did not want to rely on any kind of AV or production that would have potential to kind of fall apart in another country where I hadn't worked with people, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought, great, the more analog you can make this and more self-reliant and self-dependent you can do this, is, you know, the best, especially when you're encountering you know, an audience that's not necessarily there to see you. So, you know, just to give a little bit of context for the audience here, the performance uh, that I did at the Serpentine with five other artists, um, performers, was basically kind of referencing traditional Korean folk drama, which is um, called Talchum. And anyways, uh, basically, these performers wear masks and would perform these performances, you know, whatever, once a year, let's just say, let, we'll get that out of the way. So the whole thing with the performance of the Serpentine was to make the audience move around the, the pavilion. So it wasn't the kind of stage setting and seated audience. And I was hoping to create um, movement in a way that the performers would feel like they had agency where it was them who was dictating uh, the terms of how the performance would be presented. And so I was able to kind of lay that blueprint onto the way uh, the Venice Biennale performance was. And so we basically, you know, walked around the Giardini and had different kind of located spots that we had pre-planned where there would be maybe a more choreographed set and then we would move on. And I mean, you know, that was, I think, a really good experience for all of us because you basically have 
the 1% of the art world, indeed, probably some of the 1% of the world moving, depending on where these set of five performers are going, that were just armed basically with masks, colorful kind of a denim costumes that I had made mask made by my partner Benito and then a professional traditional Korean percussionist who is you know beating her drum and kind of like uh, creating not only the the rhythm and the music for the performers but also that was basically her voice the voice of the performance getting people to move and you know that performance was basically a precursor to Art Night 2019 which happened at Walthamstow in uh, in June And because I had these two large projects that were quite close to each other, I thought it was a good idea to work with the same set of ideas, which I think is the smart thing to do. You're able to kind of dig a little bit deeper if you work with one subject. And I guess the main premise for that body of work was the, the, you know, once forgotten creation myth in Korean folklore called Mago Halmi or Grandmother Mago, which centers around basically a giant elderly woman who created the geological land formation bridges, fortresses, mountains, rivers of, let's say, in all likelihood, Asia, East Asia, through the collection of rocks that she would put into her, you know, working apron, her excrement and her urine, and she built all the mountains this way. So I guess that was kind of the main idea, the idea that the creator of lands would be this giant elderly woman. And I was really interested in that story specifically because it was an oral tradition that was basically lost when likely Confucius scholars. Don't quote me on that. It might not have just been Confucius scholars that might have predated that. It might have just been men, men scribes who, you know, didn't think that these stories were of importance and they were lost. And then, you know, when they were found again in the 80s, they kind of came back as more, I guess, caricatured descriptions of a kind of an old crone lady and kind of told more in like, um, I guess, in a childlike juvenile way and not in the way where the figure of this woman was venerated as kind of a deity or a goddess herself, you know, the way she would have originally been spoken to and prayed to and given offerings, etc. So it was more of a kind of idea of highlighting these kind of forgotten feminist stories. And then I also married that narrative with a pod of killer whales or orca indigenous to where I'm from. And this group of orcas, I'm really interested in them specifically because of the kind of matrilineal knowledge of survival skills that are passed on from grandmother, mother, and, and calf. And mainly because this group of um, orcas was once led by a matriarch grandmother orca who died in 2016 and her nickname was Granny. And so I was really interested in this idea of kind of grandmother figures, elderly figures that pass down kind of survival skills through, I guess, genealogical legacies, you know, and in my case, thinking very specifically about those kind of matrilineal feminist legacies, mainly because that's how I view my own family history and feel like I've benefited from those those types of stories in my own family. This is a recurrent theme in, in your work, and it came up in a work of yours that I found particularly striking when I first spoke to you and indeed came to visit you in your studio in London, uh, which is a piece called Cool Waiting, which is a painted textile work that shows two women in front of these pink red flames and a planet that looks like Venus, and they're holding conch shells to their ears as if they were telephones, revealing these shells having these like fire red vulva-like apertures. And, you know, when I spoke to you, I said I'd been spending a lot of time in Central Asia and I said that it reminded me of certain Soviet space age painting that I'd seen particularly in that part of the former USSR. And, you know, and you spoke 
about how actually, you know, the image had its origins close to home and that you'd wanted to use an image of your mother as a young woman originally and she preferred not to do that. So you used images from these vintage Korean advertisements that your mother used to collect as a teenager. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that work, partly because I really like it, but partly because I know that doing those sorts of paintings and print isn't really sort of typical of your, your more recent practice. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something like I studied painting. That was my main art foundation for my education for 10 years. But I think my mom is really important for me as an artist because I see so much of her own life and the things that I don't know as kind of integral to the stories that I then tell because of, I guess, the gaps that she's left me. And in that work, I did want to use an image of her um, but because she's very private and she, I, yeah, whatever. She just didn't want her face everywhere. I think she didn't feel comfortable with it. As you just said, I, I thought it would be interesting to kind of, you know, use images of these, I guess, idealistic images of young Korean women from, you know, advertisements in the 70s and 80s, thinking about like, these are images maybe my mom would have looked at and wanted to have been like. And, you know, the conch shell is a reoccurring motif in my work, um, mainly because of its, I guess the way I think about them is kind of like communicative receptors or telephones or spaces in which you're able to, I guess, transcend linear time, time travel. And I guess that comes from my stumbling upon this specific shell in Jeju Island in Korea. And I always think about this story because it sums up who I am so perfectly. So I went to Korea with my mom and my partner to do kind of a research trip. And we went to Jeju Island, which is a very small island on the southern tip of the, you know, South Korean um, mainland. And there are all these beautiful kind of round turban snail shells. And I guess as a young kid in Vancouver, I always went beach combing and it's always a treat to find, you know, these really gorgeous intact shells. And so I found a bunch and I was freaking out and me and my partner and my mom, we were collecting them all. And, you know, in my head, I'm like, oh, wow, I'm having this like connection to like, part of my family's like homeland even though my family is not from Jeju Island you know just having this total outsider kind of like weird fantasy and then obviously you know a look to my side and I see the local Korean you know fishing women the hangyo they're selling all of these sea snails and they've got bin bags just loads of bin bags with all these discarded shells that have flies swarming around them because no one cares about these shells except for the person from North America who's trying to have this kind of like experience in her like family's homeland. So I just thought that was kind of funny as well, because this kind of, I guess, this food stuff, the carcass of, you know, this animal or this creature that people just eat on the regular there, you know, held so much kind of, I guess, metaphorical importance to me. Thinking about the shell as a kid, you know, you find that, you put it up to your ear and you're told, oh, listen to the ocean or, you know, you can hear something, you know, just that idea of the telephone. And I guess it's kind of, it is, and it was kind of a symbol for me, again, like I said, to transcend time, I guess, have this type of connection, maybe with an ancestral ghost or someone else in a different time sphere that might connect me again to that abstract homeland, which I don't connect to geographically or even culturally as, you know, your Korea in a geopolitical sense. For me, it's more of like an abstract thing. Yeah, you've spoken elsewhere about your relationship with, you know, what you might call oriental imagery, and particularly how it's used in Western culture, indeed, when we spoke before. 
you mentioned that the you know the sort of yin yang symbol and the way that is quite ubiquitous in the west you know down to the point where the tube's oyster logo is this kind of bastardized version of this uh, this logo and you've kind of engaged as much with how that imagery has been used in western pop culture and i think your your relationship with western pop culture is quite interesting in itself as well as how you engage with your diasporic position within it so i wonder if we could talk a bit more about that and how that's influenced your practice yeah sure i mean it's really interesting because i think when i first started proactively inserting you know specific images within the, I guess, the vocabulary or the vernacular that I was trying to speak with, with the textiles, for example, as you mentioned, the yin-yang. I think I was doing those things much more overtly. And when I say that, I, I mean this. So the yin-yang symbol, as you said, in the West, you know, means a whole host of things and it also means nothing, right? And that's what I actually really liked about it. Because on one hand, as a young person growing up in Canada, I didn't have a lot of connection to my family's culture, right? I think a lot of it was because I was pushing so hard away and against it. But what I did notice when I went to visit my cousins for the summer in Alberta, where they lived, was that they had tons of Asian friends and they seemed to be very comfortable in their Asian Canadian myths. And the yin-yang symbol, I think it must have been like a 90s thing. They were probably about between 16 and 18 at the time. They would wear like shirts with like yin-yang symbols and like like tribal tattoo-ish type stuff and put these yin-yang symbols on their like souped up cars. And my cousin even had it tattooed on her arm or something, her back. And also my uncle was like a Taekwondo martial artist or he was when he was a young person like a lot of korean men and when i would see photos of you know him in the gym you would see the yin yang symbol everywhere so i guess in some ways it was a signal to me as like a real image of what asianness in all the complications and problematics of that word term uh, hold was so i guess i gravitated really heavily to it psychologically i just I, that's something i can get with and then also it's using pop culture made it seem like this is okay to be cool like i can i can also latch onto this you know i'm speaking from the perspective of like an 11 year old right but you know 11 through like even 15 years old and so whilst i acknowledge and i understand and i'm playing with the fact that it's also this totally banal cannibalized image that we use in the west to sell whatever surfboards or something or as you said oyster cards it also did have a lot of meaning for me and I like that slippage because I thought, right, a lot of this work, I think from a North American perspective, I think that there was a lot of codes in it that reference, let's say, you know, pop culture and hip hop culture that people would understand maybe what I was doing within that kind of like, I guess, that language. And then within an art context, I think a lot of folks who were not from Asia would think this looks like the work of an Asian artist or an American Asian artist and a lot of Asian born artists were like what the hell is this like wannabe weird totally non-Asian perspective of what it is to look like an Asian thing and I like that because it it's the truth you know so whilst I was being kind of conscious that I was doing that I felt like it was very natural because that state of confusion and slippage is something that I feel and have felt for my entire life. And it's interesting because I recently did um, a Zoom roundtable chit chat with the group of students at the Slade. And one of the students 
I forget if he was from Hong Kong. But anyways, he had mentioned to me he was struggling with using certain images in, in his work because he would have to give certain explanations and he didn't know sometimes why he was attracted to certain modes of working, et cetera, et cetera, symbols. And he said, you know, when he found my work, he was interested because he, as a Chinese-born person, would never use a yin-yang symbol because it was such a culturally loaded thing. And he thought like, oh my God, like, I can't believe she's doing that. I guess probably on one hand being like, I would never even touch that because I just, there's too many complications around it. But also maybe even interested in the fact that I would dare. And I told him, you know, I think that's, it makes sense. And I think that whilst obviously like I have this personality trait where I constantly want to please people, I never want to upset anyone. It's like, it, it deeply makes me very, very sad if I know that I'm hurting someone. But at the same time, from a North American perspective, it is an authentic position to have. It is an image that's been you know, co-opted and changed so many times and transformed meaning. And anyways, I just thought that whole thing was interesting. And I think recently in my work, I'm still doing the same thing, but I'm not doing it intentionally, if you know what I mean. Like I'm doing it, but it's like there was this, another young person who made a think made a reference to a Helen Martin text you know that they had uh, read where I think it's talking about magical soup and soup is really interesting because it can just look like a beige color but you don't know all the blended up ingredients that are in there to make that thing and I guess that's kind of how I'm approaching my work now where these ideas are always kind of swirling around my head but rather than making them so explicit I'd rather have them exist in kind of more subtle tones and again that's not even intentional I think a large part of how I'm trying to work nowadays is through, I guess, pleasure and just doing things because they feel instinctual and automatic and then dealing with that stuff after so that it's not so premeditated, if that makes sense. Yeah. It almost seems like a more honest way to do things because it's always very easy to edit and script yourself, you know, and I still do it. I, I absolutely do it. But yeah, it's just... I guess even trying to think about myself and whatever identity politics, you know, in quotations within art making cultural production in a way that's outside of me. So, you know, I'm really interested in thinking about mythology around animals and the environment and using animals as a kind of like, I guess, an avatar to think about myself without only focusing on myself because it's just not where I'm super keen on locating the work, even though that's, I guess, where the work will always sit. You know, like I'm always embarrassed to read my bio because it's like, oh, the notions of self and the constructions of self-identity. And I'm just like, oh, gosh, it's so, ugh. it's like I feel embarrassed about it. <laughs> but then I also feel like, why do I feel embarrassed about it? Because it, it seems unintellectual, anti-intellectual. Is it too sentimental? You know, that whole discourse around that, which is really quite colonial or something so yeah I guess I just have to realize I'm like well I just leave it in because I guess it's honest even if you know you might see work that focuses in and around the kinship and care of like family structures within an orca pod I'm actually thinking about kinship and care within a family sense where I come from but hopefully this is something that's not read as oh this is specifically about this Korean American experience of a person who grew you know I don't want the work to be like that I'm much more interested in opening up dialogue where lots of different folks can feel like they're able to insert how they might position themselves within that sphere as well and I think that probably just comes down to 
a little bit of my age too. Like, again, I said, I'm turning 37. And when I was a teenager, I did, did not have that. And I know it's not only about representation. I completely understand that argument and I agree with it. But I guess there's something that's so deeply important for me to allow myself to see myself. And I want that for everyone, that that's just always within the work. And I'm sure other young people find it cringy or like not cool or something. You know, that's just the way I do things and what comes naturally to me. Yeah. And uh, I know there's been a process in your work of bringing yourself more into the work in order to make yourself feel more confident, particularly with your performance work, but also some of your video work. And then, you know, go through that process in order to take yourself out of the work again. That's also Mm -hmm. been something I've very much been through, you know, done an awful lot of writing about my own experiences in order to get myself into a position where I no longer feel obliged to do that. Well, maybe we can talk about that process in a few of your recent works. I mean, I picked out three from the second half of the 2010s. So I picked out, yeah, a video piece called Mood Rings, Crystals and Opal Coloured Stones from 2016, which is a combination of computer-generated effects and live action, which uses some archival footage of Korean dancing and drumming alongside images of the sea. And you appear in, in that video. And then the following year, you made a two-channel video work called The Conch, Sea Urchin and Brass Bell, where again, you appeared in clothes that you designed yourself, um, that used things like capes, partly as a reference to magic and superheroes, but also because, as you said to me at the time, they allow the body to move. And then a piece you made in 2018 called Iridescent Interludes, which talks about this idea of skin folk, not kin folk, that you've just been alluding to in in the conversation here as well so maybe we could talk a little bit about the you know the creative progression through those works the development of the themes the sea imagery that you mentioned earlier certain kind of korean rituals and the forms that you used in those work because they are slightly different each time I think. yeah i feel like i know nothing about like moving image i'm definitely everything is very much self-taught and i kind of stumble along the way and the first work that you mentioned, Mood Rings, Crystals, and Opal Colored Stones, I think that was my second like video work I'd made. And at the time, and you know, I'm still very much influenced by Korean shamanism, which is an indigenous culture and religion of Korea that you know goes back 5,000 years. In that video, I guess what I really wanted to do without kind of explicitly knowing and ha- knowing it or knowing how to verbalize it was to maybe create again some type of a reference to the trance-like states that shamans will go through in order to, let's say, talk to the the dead or talk to the gods. And I think that that space for me, that liminal middle space, or the third space, as Homi Baba would say, is kind of, I guess, the landscape in which I envision all of my works to exist in. And through making the work I'm slowly chipping away at some type of like tunnel to get there (laughs) I'm not sure what I'm going to find when I when I get there I think that's probably the journey that we all individually have with the things that we're trying to figure out but in that work specifically I mean you can see it's there's things that I'm referencing I think even through my own body like trying to understand what the initiation of a Korean shaman is like certain dance moves that are used, let's say maybe in more performative folkloric framed within the UNESCO heritage presentation of Korean shamanism, because the actual religious practice of Korean shamanism is illegal in Korea and very much looked down upon. 
So that was kind of how I was, I think, at the moment, trying to navigate my idea of the Korean shaman as a prism, as a metaphor for one who is navigating the in-between space of, I guess, national identity, identity at large. And I always liked that idea that the shaman was able to kind of speak to the dead and they're able to kind of move through that middle space. And I think that's what that work for me was about, you know, thinking of myself, the alter ego of myself going through that transitional state and trying to make that journey into that unknown space. And also I think, you know, it's sometimes it's, it's hard for me and I don't know what this embarrassment is about because I genuinely do feel like this. And I think it has to do with feeling inadequate or very anti-intellectual or something. But I have a genuine interest and belief that thinking about these traditional cultural practices does bring me closer to my family. And when I mean family, I don't even mean a bloodline thing. It's just understanding who you are and where you come from. Yeah, and then, you know, the second video that I made was the conch sea urchin brass bell. And I made that with my partner and my mom when we went to Korea, went to Jeju Island. Part of it is filmed in, um, you know, in, in Andong, Daegu, where my mom is from, where my auntie lives, and in, on Jeju Island. Yeah, and I guess that whole thing, again, it's just is a continuation of my interest in, again, that middle ground space of trying to locate that ancestral homeland and trying to think about ways in which one gets there. And, you know, I've always used the grandmother or the elderly woman figure as the kind of, I guess, that person who's calling me back home or who's trying to get me to understand where my roots come from. And I did that mainly because, you know, one's history, I think, depending on what kind of family you come from or, you know, the culture you belong to is either more explicit or more private. And I always felt that my mom was very private. I've only learned about things that happened to her as a child. And even as a young adult, very recently, things that I had never known and, you know, I was quite surprised about. So I think it was easier for me, again, instead of kind of laying the burden on my mom and parading her out into my work, was to create this fictional grandmother figure because I never met my maternal grandmother because she died when my mom was about 12 years old. So it's easy to think about her ghost or her spirit within the work. And it's, again, it's not even tied specifically to her. And, you know, the sea is really important to me. I grew up on the West Coast of what we call Canada now. And, you know, thinking about the migration of people, the migration of people in my family who willingly, you know, obviously came to Canada to look for a better life. But also thinking about people who are forcibly moved over bodies of water and how, you know, the sea is, I guess it's this obviously migratory path for obviously, you know, whales and cargo and fish and animals, etc. But also thinking of it as an abstract space, just like deep space. There's very few of us, and I say this all the time, it's very repetitive, but I think it's important within the context of storytelling. It's like very few of us have been to the deep ocean. Very few of us on this planet have been to outer space, but all of us collectively more or less understand what those locations could be like. We can kind of imagine, right? And I think that when you have something that is so abstract and unknown, but that you kind of have some familiarity with it, you're able to create narratives and root them in something that feels real. That makes sense. There's a foothold that you can actually feel like, yes, this is fantasy, is a speculative fiction, but I, I believe it. This is a real place. And so I think for me, that's also been really, um, those ideas of immigration, migration, and the movement, time travel, have been really important and prevalent in the work. So, and I guess just very quickly, and I think it goes, it circles back 
to my earlier comments about racism, thinking about one's complicity, complacency, historically, in the present, et cetera, et cetera. The whole idea of skin folk but not kin folk, I used that in uh, an audio performative playback that I had in a performance in Palais de Tokyo and another a sound piece that I had. And, you know, that's obviously referencing uh, Zora Neale Hurston, who said, oh, my skin folk ain't my kin folk. And it's the idea that race and shared ethnicity, in her case specifically, the Black body is not the single qualifier, meaning that, obviously, in my case, people of color, also agents who can carry um, the ideals and reinforce uh, white supremacy, right? And I guess within my work, that's where that comes from. And that's something that I, especially right now, I'm thinking about a lot. How can I do less bad <laughs> as a non-Black person of color? But in the work, I was really thinking about not always feeling kinship with other Koreans because, or Asians, East Asians, because when I was growing up and even now, again, it's a very boring old story that a lot of people have also echoed, but the idea that you're never seen as being the full authentic self, never going to be really Korean. You're never going to be obviously Canadian because Canadian within that context means, you know, white settler, descendants of white settlers. And so it was something that I had thought a lot about in that work specifically, thinking about holding up that mirror and feeling really, I guess, not in a self-cating way, but recognizing the fact that I failed in many ways of checking the boxes of being a Korean person. You know, there's a part in that text that I say, your tongue is not able to bend in the same way that's able to basically, you know, speak the language of your mother and how you'll never be like your mother. And yeah, thinking about not really being a Korean because you actually look like something else. Anyways, it goes into a whole other thing. So it's just the idea that, yeah, you know, race and ethnicity is not the, the single qualifier for I guess even solidarity and not within the context of Black Lives Movement within that sound piece it was more thinking of a collective understanding but that there's always going to be kind of frictions within these things. I don't know I guess that quote right now is really important to think about non-Black POC solidarity and comrade allyship just because we have also dealt with very specific forms of racism. Not all oppression is the same, right? And it's important to look inward and think, you know, what have I done? What have I benefited from that um, has kept my siblings down, for example? So yeah, it's heavy. I don't mean for it to go like heavy all of a sudden, but I think that happens in a lot of my work. A lot of it actually is thinking about really heavy stuff that I've kind of thought about a lot um, recently and as a young person as well. Yeah, you know, to, I guess, go full circle on what we've been talking about, one of the reasons why the Black Lives Matter protests have happened now, and with the level of passion that they have, particularly in the United States, and I think to quite a large extent in the UK as well, I mean, there are several factors. There are decades and centuries long history of violence against people of colour, and especially black people. I think there are the really the quite overt stitch-ups of um, Jeremy Corbyn here and Bernie Sanders in the US, I think, as people who were peacefully and democratically trying to bring about some of the sort of large-scale reforms that a lot of people of colour and younger people really felt were needed to the societies in which they live. Uh, but there was also 
you know, certainly, and I'm not quite sure about North America, but certainly in the UK, the gross inequality with which Black and Asian and minority ethnic people have disproportionately died from COVID-19 or been affected by it to do with structural things about which jobs people of colour work in and why, what type of jobs and how vulnerable they were to being more or less asked, if not ordered, to carry on working during the COVID crisis. And, you know, another thing that's going to come out of the COVID crisis, of course, is a diminishing of international travel, which, you know, lots of people in the art world are reliant upon. And obviously, you know, for you having family in Canada and cultural heritage in South Korea, you know, both these places are quite a long way away. You know, I wondered if you had any thoughts about how the COVID crisis, the lockdown, coming out of the lockdown, you know, are going to sort of change the society you work in and whether you think it might change your practice in the future? Gosh, I guess I'm, we're so in the middle of it that I don't really know, but I can say this. I was supposed to be in Canada right now on site installing an exhibition that would have opened on the 20th and then we would have done, you know, a performance on the opening day or something. So that obviously got postponed and it's going to happen in October now. And even in October, I'm not probably not going to be able to install the work and they're going to try to do maybe a Zoom type of, you know, I guess something similar like this, but kind of on video to commemorate, I guess to open the, the show. And I'm not sure how they would have people come in and out because again, the exhibition will basically be a theatrical a uh, very immersive space where there's the sound work that travels around the room and there'll be five main large sculptures which the narrative will go around and the idea is that people sit in and around the floor on carpets so it's kind of a theatrical space but obviously I'm not really sure how that's going to work or if they're only going to allow a you know certain amount of people in into the space I guess the biggest concern I had with that was I was planning to go uh, to Vancouver for the summer right after the exhibition opened, which I was very much looking forward to, to being in Vancouver in the summertime, which I have not done for, I, gosh, I don't even know, maybe eight years. And to spend time with my, as I always call them, my real friends, my non-art world friends. And that really bums me out. And I guess it's always like that thing when you know you can't have something, it makes you not necessarily want it more, but makes you more sad that you can't have it or, you know, that's what happens with nostalgia. So I think at the moment I'm okay with it because obviously I'm very happy to know the people that I care about are okay and they're safe. But on the other hand, I guess it's like a confusing thing because you don't know when you're going to be able to actually see your family again. And two, in terms of my work, I'm very fortunate in the sense that I do a lot of different things within my practice but central to everything I like all of that to exist in one space you know so I want moving image I want sound I want maybe a live performance you know and if that doesn't happen the performativity through sculpture painting and as I mentioned audiovisual stuff and if that can't happen it's fine I'll find alternatives but yeah I don't know it will be hard I think especially for folks that make things that require you to see those things in life there's a big push for digital content or digital online shows which I think is actually really interesting it's finally giving space to think about digital material as like real art stuff the the material in which the work needs to be made for that platform right as opposed to oh here's a photo let me upload that tiff or jpeg online but then also I think it's 
I mean, I'm thinking specifically about, you know, young people and students that are grading this year because I have spoken to a lot of them about what they're going to do for their own practices. Gosh, I don't know. It, I guess there's no way other to say it. It sucks because when you make something that needs to be seen in life, it needs to be seen in life. You can't have, it doesn't matter how many 360 degree things, that, that just changes the work. And that can be really interesting. And it is interesting, right? I mean, it's a different thing. And ultimately, most people, even me, and I'm, I can be incredibly antisocial and, you know, regarding lockdown, listen, I'm really isolated. I'm by myself all the time. I was totally fine with that. But it's like the idea that I want to see shows too, even though when I can, you know, I complain. I'm like, I don't like these shows. I'm not going. But, you know, realistically, I want to go. And I think most people want to go and be in those spaces and to be you know, near work where you can smell the materials, you can see how things are made, you can see the touch of the hand or whatever. I mean, I'm speaking specifically for me. So, I mean, I definitely think it will change things. I mean, I guess more exciting for me, or not exciting, but one of the things I do think about is like, well, I hope it does shake things up for the commercial art market. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, again, it's just, it's not my thing to want to try to be on the fair circuit. That's not an interesting way for me to work. I understand I'm obviously like losing out economically, you know, in a big way by not participating in those types of things. But I also think that hopefully more interesting work will be made because there'll be more space and time giving and maybe art fairs won't take up so much time from artists. I don't know, but at the same time, I know nothing about that world, you know, so I don't actually know, you know, I have my opinions as a viewer and as an artist, but I don't understand how those things actually hold up. But I don't think anyone's soul is nourished by going to an art fair. It doesn't matter how much good work is actually there. It's just the context in which it's presented outside of all the, you know, the hoopla and the money and like the other creepy things that I don't enjoy. That's just me personally. But just you just see this amazing work and you feel like you're like going to SeaWorld or something. This is not the way you're supposed to experience this stuff. Yeah, and it'll be really interesting to see how, you know, individual artists practice change. But yeah, as you say, like how the whole art world's modus operandi changes and maybe even some changes for the better. I mean, we, we did a show a couple of weeks ago with Stefan Kalmar from the ICA and Helen Stalker from the Turnpike Gallery and Lee. And, you know, there's quite a lot of pessimism about the future of the art world on the other side of this. But hopefully, as you say, you know, for individual artists, if not for the, the culture industry and the art industry, there might be some right. positives. Anyway, yeah. I think maybe we should wrap up there. Zadie, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Juliet. It's been really, really nice. Listeners, thanks a lot for tuning in, as always. Follow us on Twitter at sweet underscore 212. Find us on Facebook. We're here on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash sweet-212. Donate to us on Patreon. Subscribe at patreon.com slash sweet-212. We'll have an episode coming up with the Jarman Award-winning filmmaker, Ari Ashery, soon. There'll be more of these sessions over the summer and probably beyond the lockdown. I've been your host, Juliet Jakes. Thanks a lot for listening. Take care. Goodbye.